In today's episode of I Believe Now What, we are going to be going over things you need to be on guard about when going to church. Whether you're looking for a church or you're already in a church, we're going to go over certain things and we're not going to cover the super obvious stuff like preaching a false gospel or anything like that. We're going to go over the subtle, almost deceptive tactics that you need to be on guard for when you are looking for or currently attending a church. Now, number one, I want to say before we get into this episode, this is not my my goal here is not for you to run off and leave your church if you spot one or two or three of these things that I talked about, but rather approach your pastor, approach your leaders, talk to them about this, see where the heart of the matter is on these topics. And number two, If you do see a lot of these things, then maybe you do need to run from this church. But at the end of the day, I'm not all about church hopping. It is so amazing when you can be anchored into a body of believers and they are just feeding into you and you are feeding into them and having those iron sharpens iron moments. Anyways, this is a very long intro. Welcome to the episode and welcome to I Believe Now What? Hello, everybody. My name is Tim Perko and you're listening to I Believe Now What? Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I hope y'all are having a wonderful week out there. If this is your first time here, I believe Now What is a podcast that is geared towards the Christian and just their everyday walk of life. We do topical studies, Bible studies. We talk about current events, theology, doctrine, you name it. Anything that can help the Christian, that's what we want to go over in this podcast. In today's episode, as you heard from the intro, we're going to go over things that you need to be guard on guard about when you are going to a church. I want to keep in mind, as I said before, this is not an exhaustive list. It would be impossible for me to go over every single topic of things to look out for in a church. But instead, as I said in the intro, I want to go over some of the more subtle things that you see behind the scenes. Some of these churches that do this, they have no idea that they're actually doing these deception tactics. That's why I said I don't want you to look at this and be like, oh my gosh, my church is doing two or three of these things. I need to leave. No, 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 no. Sometimes it's just the thing that a lot of popular churches do, and they copy that model unknowingly or subconsciously and get these things in their church. I, by no means, am a perfect person either. You may have disagreements with me on some of these things that we are going to talk about today. And if you do, I highly encourage you to write me about it. Look up I Believe Now What podcast on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, Hit me up on Gmail. That's going to be ibnwpodcast at gmail.com and talk to me about these things. I would be more than happy to have a one-on-one conversation with you. Maybe we'll even bring you on the show if you're interested in it. At the end of the day, I am not infallible. I do not know everything, and I am never going to be above correction. Now, with all that being said, let's get into our episode. All right, so things to be on guard for number one. Going to a church that has one pastor in charge. Now, some of you might think like, well, what's wrong with that? My church has one pastor in charge and all this thing. It's the potential that it leads to that you got to be on guard for. Having one pastor in charge, one person who is the be all say all of the church. In other words, you can even have associate pastors under him. You can have eldership underneath him. But at the end of the day, if he's the one pastor in charge and it doesn't happen unless he says yes or no, the potential for corruption is huge. Not only this, we talked about it in a previous episode before, but having one pastor in charge of the church does not line up biblically 
with what the Bible says. We never see the apostles writing in the New Testament to one specific person at a church. They're always writing to the elders of the churches, and that's plural elders. Now, we do see Timothy, we do see Titus, Paul wrote to those two people, but those two people were not pastors of a church. They weren't elders of a church. Instead, those two were more like apostolic assistants. They would go out to these churches Um, Paul would send them over there to pretty much help fix any issues that they had going on. We can get into that more later on, but essentially things to look out for. Number one, one pastor being in charge. I think you know what could happen if you do that. Just take a look at the Catholic church, everything that they went through. And I'm sorry to my Catholic brothers and sisters out there, but it's true. You have one person in charge and all of a sudden they believe that their word is now infallible when it is truly not. Only the word of God is infallible. Things to look out for, number two, sermons that are all about you and not about God. Or in other words, the motivational speech pastor. I'm going to go ahead and use an example and he often gets beat up and rightly so. Joel Olstein, the pastor of Lakewood Church out in Houston, Texas. I used to listen to him every single week, all the time when I was in my young 20s. Why? Because I was probably not a Christian around that time. I'm pretty sure I wasn't. I was out drinking. I would go out Saturday, get drunk at the bar, get drunk at the club. I was living a promiscuous lifestyle. I was doing things that a person that claims to be a Christian should not be doing. And then I would turn on old smiling Joel Olstein on Sunday and he would make me feel really good about my life. You know, God's got me. Uh, He can forgive this. He's even said before, he's not the type of person to preach on sin because he truly believes that all people recognize that they're bad and hate to say it. Actually, no, I don't hate to say it because it's in the Bible. The Bible says the exact opposite, that we are not good people, that we do not follow after God in our natural state, that we are slaves to our own sin before we truly become Christians and not preaching on that sin and instead giving motivational speeches, that's a bad thing. The next thing that you need to look out for in that whole sermon about the person, we'll take it down a level. Maybe someone who's a little bit like a step down from Joel Olstein, and that would be the Stephen Furtick type pastor. Uh, he's the pastor over at Elevation Church. I'm not sure where it is. I've watched a few of his sermons before, not because I wanted to watch them, but truly because I didn't want to take anything out of context. But what I noticed is he is the pastor that will consistently insert either himself or you, the members, into out-of-context Bible passages and somehow turn that into a motivational speech. Example, he will take the whole David and Goliath thing and inserting you as the role of David and whatever your problem or issue is that you're going through is your Goliath. And you need to slay that giant and get it out of your life and blah, 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 all this stuff. That's all well and good, but at the end of the day, that passage wasn't about that. Or as Matt Chandler said, because I'm really taking a lot from him on this one, the Bible's not about you. You are not David. Your problem is not Goliath. Nevertheless, we do need to look to God for these answers, but that's taking scripture out of context. And he's really much, pretty much guilty for what's known as an eisegesis. When you read the Bible, you want to have a proper exegesis. In other words, that means that you are pulling things from scripture And then you can apply the proper hermeneutical process, uh, which is pretty much learning to take what was said then in context and then being able to apply it to your life. 
what he does, like I said, is an eisegesis, which is inserting yourself and your preconceived notions into the scriptures and not taking anything in context whatsoever about it. You're pretty much just pulling out this random passage and you say, how can I see me in this passage? When a lot of passages, especially Old Testament passages, are not meant for that. They are meant for our learning. They are meant for education. But there is so much danger that gets involved when you read every single Bible verse and try to see yourself inside that verse when the context had nothing to do with you in the first place. Just so we can see the proper application, the best way to read the Bible, as I said, reading it in context, maybe you get the verse of the day on your phone. And instead of just reading that verse and having a very bad out of context moment, instead, read the verses that come beforehand, read the verses that come afterwards, read the whole chapter so you can get a good sense of who the audience was, who was this being addressed to. Now you can take that in context and apply that to your life. That's the hermeneutical process, kind of in a nutshell. You can go much deeper than that, but that's essentially what it is. All right, deception tactic or really things to look out for number three, and that is a church that is numbers driven and they prioritize evangelizing over feeding the congregation or feeding the sheep, as I would say. So what is that numbers driven church? A lot of people call this the market driven church. They're a church that looks more like a multi-million dollar business corporation than you know, a church, (laughs) Uh, but they are obsessed with numbers. They are always constantly trying to keep count. How many people did we get in today? How many people confess Christ today? Uh, And they prioritize most of their efforts in evangelizing and marketing rather than giving good Bible, theological, exegetical sermons that feed the sheep or programs or whatever the other case may be. They are a good church will prioritize feeding the congregation, teaching the congregation, equipping the congregation in Christian life rather than giving milk messages that are geared towards an unbelieving audience. Now, don't get me wrong. Evangelizing inside the church is not a bad thing, but when it's your primary focus, that's when it becomes wrong. We can look back to the Bible and look at these old ancient churches that Apostle Paul was writing to. Who was he addressing? He was assuming that every single person inside that church was a Christian. He didn't give these churches, hey, this is what you need to do to grow your church. This is what you need to do to get members in. You need to form a panel committee to figure out what's popular right now. So that way we can go ahead and use that to get more people in, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. No, he didn't do that. He assumed every single person inside that church was uh, at least either a Christian or they were geared towards Christianity. It wasn't assuming that every single person there was an unbeliever. Now, granted, I think as a pastor, it is a good practice to not believe that every person inside your church is saved because there are people who believe that they are Christians, but yet when you look at their life, there is absolutely no sign of Christianity whatsoever. And yes, it is good to go back to the gospel every single sermon. I think the gospel should be preached somehow in every single sermon that you preach because it's essential to our life. Even if you are already a believer, man, that is just refreshing to me and refreshing to my soul to hear the gospel in every message. And I truly believe it can fit into pretty much every message. 
But at the end of the day, the purpose of the church is to grow the sheep, to grow the congregation in grace and in knowledge. And what's supposed to happen is instead of the church evangelizing everybody, it's the people in the congregation who then go out of the church and evangelize people and bring them into the church. That's how numbers grow, really. You teach the people what the Bible actually says, and you don't do it in a milky mushy way. You do it in a solid, theological, meaty way, pretty much just reading the scriptures and explaining it to them, letting the Holy Spirit do the work in the people's lives. And then those people are equipped to go out into the world, evangelize, and then you have more people coming into the church. Now, I do believe this is something a lot of churches, not all of them, but a vast, uh, probably a pretty good majority of them do without bad intentions. They have good intentions behind it. They're not saying, oh, let's get them in the door so we can make as much money as possible or something like that. They truly want to see people saved. But the issue with this is, is that it's the Holy Spirit that saves people. It's the word of God that saves people when they hear that gospel message. And I know what they think. They think if we can get them in the door, then we can give them that gospel message and they can believe. But at the same time, what you do when you have that mindset subconsciously is you give out these milk messages that are meant for unbelievers to come to believe and you're forsaking the people inside your church who are strong believers and they are hungry and starving for the word of God. They need meat messages, not milk messages. So as I said, if you end up with that mentality, oh, you know, good example. We call them the CEOs a lot, the Christmas and Easter onlys. A lot of pastors at a lot of churches know that on Christmas and Easter, they're going to get huge numbers coming in because there's a lot of people that just go to church on them because they feel like they need to out of obligation or tradition. So what do they do? A lot of churches will milk that message down. They give a very watered down evangelistic style message. And that's honestly what turns into every day when you are a market-driven church, when you believe that you have to get these numbers in here. Once again, it goes back to what I said earlier. It's the sheep that you are feeding inside your church, the Christian inside your church, that should be the one going out evangelizing and bringing people to church. But we've gotten so content, especially here in the Western side uh, in America, with churches that, oh, I go to church on Sunday, I listen to the pastor, I listen to what he said, and then I go home. No, it should not be that way. It should be the people inside the church actively going out and evangelizing, doing whatever they can, talking to people at work, living out their Christian life through their actions, having conversations with people, starting a podcast, starting a YouTube channel. You know, not everybody's called to do everything the same way, but at the end of the day, however you're trying to get out there and evangelize, that's what the church should be focusing on. So you feed your sheep, you feed your congregation, you go through the Bible, you preach expository messages, and then the sheep come in because your sheep will go out and evangelize them to come to church. Oh, I talked about that one a little bit longer than I intended to, but I'm very passionate on that. I'm not a fan of the market-driven church. All right, number four, an overemphasis on offering and tithing. Ooh, I just struck a lot of nerves there, especially if maybe you're some pastors that are big on this. But at the end of the day, when you are putting an overemphasis, like when you maybe give a uh, 10, 5, 10-minute 10 spiel every single time before you do offering, 
about, oh, if you if you bless this church, then God's going to bless you in return or other things like that and taking scriptures way out of context. That church, that's probably a warning sign that that church is very money hungry. I know some Christians that I've talked to that are so anti that that if the church even offer talks about offering, they won't go anymore. Now, I do believe it is important to to understand what responsible giving is and what the Christian's duty is when it comes to giving. But when you start making it mandatory and saying this is mandatory to do, that's where it becomes wrong. This is one of the many reasons why I do not use the word tithe. Because the tithe, the tithe literally means 10%. You're putting a number on it. Not only that, the tithe is an Old Testament concept. We see nowhere in the church age, anywhere in the New Testament, where it talks about how we are commanded to continue tithing after Jesus Christ already paid for our sins and fulfilled the law. Every a lot of churches want to carry over that portion of the law. They won't carry over the other stuff, but they'll carry over that tithe one real easy. It's not a concept we do today. Search the entire New Testament and find me a passage where it says we're commanded to continue tithing. Now the New Testament does say that God loves a cheerful giver. The New Testament does say that we need to help out those in need. The New Testament does say that our pastors, our elders of our church, should be blessed financially. In fact, it says doubly blessed. Now, don't run off and take that somewhere else thinking that they should live lavish lifestyles. By no means. What that's implying is that your pastor, who is charged, as it says in the book of Hebrews, to look out for your souls, and they're going to have to give an account one day for everything that they said and taught. Not only that, uh, they're going to get judged harsher than those who don't teach, as it says in James. You want that pastor being able to concentrate on the word of God and concentrate on getting you a good message. It's really hard to do that. Take it from me. Like I said, I preach uh, intermittently at a church right now, and it is difficult when work is in full swing, working a full-time job, trying to preach a message. It's not possible for all congregations. As I said, there's congregations out there that are so small that the pastor has to get a job, and that's not completely unbiblical. Paul for instance, he while he was Paul, he received special revelation from God that we don't get. But Paul was a tent maker because he didn't want to burden people. He didn't want to burden the churches for financial money to go ahead and get around. So he made tents on the side. But nevertheless, what I was trying to say in all of that was that your pastor needs to be able to concentrate. Your pastors, your elders, they need to be able to concentrate on giving the word, putting in the study time, putting in the prayer time. They shouldn't have to be worrying about a full-time job on the side. And I want to just reemphasize, that's a humble living. That's not an extravagant mansion living. You don't want these Kenneth Copelands and all these other dudes living in multi-million dollar mansions in a lifestyle that's way above everybody in the congregation. I'm not saying that. All right, so once again... A church that puts an overemphasis on giving money uh, is a is a warning sign you need to look out for. All right, so number five, after we beat that up for a long time, number five, the feelings over scripture church or a feelings driven church. What, what do I mean by this? This is the church that elevates feelings over the scripture. 
This is the type of church that would maybe say, okay, I know the Bible doesn't talk about, uh, let's just say divorce. Okay, I know the Bible gives very specific commands on divorce and when divorce is permitted inside the Bible. But you know what? I, I just feel that it's right that you can divorce your spouse in XYZ situation. I feel that it's right. In other words, they're elevating their feelings over the scripture. They're going with their emotions and feelings and placing them above the scripture. They'll have the scripture in the background. You know, they'll say they're on the word of God, but at the end of the day, those feelings are always going to be elevated over that scripture. That's pretty self-explanatory. I'm not going to dive into that one much more. Uh, Pretty evident. Once again, the feelings over scripture style church. Number six, and this is actually a swing in the far opposite direction. So the pendulum swinging both ways here. This is the intellectual, but not spiritual church. What do I mean by that? This is the church that is very, they're, they're focused on doctrine. They're focused on theology, but yet they're pretty much dead inside. They don't do missions. They don't evangelize. They don't do any of that stuff. They just read their Bible. You go to church. Uh, they're, they're, they're very heavy in scripture. Like I said, their theology could 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 be good. They're very intellectual when it comes to the Bible, but at the end of the day, it's dead. They don't do anything outside the church. They don't evangelize. They don't do community efforts. I think I already said that, but it, I, I can't say that enough. It's the intellectual church, or in other words, like I like to say, the dead, spiritually dead church. All right, because it is, uh, before we move on, it is possible, and I know some people have a hard time with this. Uh, this applies really to kind of my side of the house, I I believe in a more reformed style theology. And there are a lot of people in reformed theology that could be intellectually savvy on the Bible. They know the key buzzwords. They know the phrases. They know the deep meanings behind them as in, you know, they know all the definitions. But when it comes to the things of the spirit, when it comes to the spiritual side of it, they're just kind of lost out there and they're just full of head knowledge. All right, that's all I'm going to say on that because, once again, very self-explanatory. All right, the next one, next sign that you need to look out for. What are we on, number seven? Yeah, I think we're on number seven, and that is hypnotic music. Whoa, that's a little bit different. Hypnotic music. What do I mean by that? So if any of you have ever listened to contemporary Christian music today, uh, especially the Hillsong, Bethel music, Carrie Job. Uh, all that kind of style of music. It is hypnotic music. I won't, don't, don't get me wrong. The, those songs sound great. Like the tones that they use, the guitars, uh, the singing, the voices. Oh, it's amazing. But a lot of those songs are one, theologically inaccurate. And even the songs that are theologically accurate, they're shallow. Uh, and even if they did by off chance kind of get deep in something, The main focus there isn't on what the words are saying. The main focus is on the tones that they play. Scientifically, there are tones and things that you play in music that are geared towards getting an emotional response out of people. Just think about movies, for instance. Go ahead and watch something like Star Wars and take the music out. It's going to seem pretty corny and ridiculous. I mean, Star Wars is one of those classic things where they know Star Wars... 
the Star Wars music, especially the early movies, that's what made those movies is that music. It incites feeling. It incites emotion. Think about a sad movie. The music starts playing. You can tell something sad's about to come up. The, the suspense is there. And then all of a sudden, the, the main character dies. And next thing you know, you're crying. The music's sad. I mean, don't get me I'm an emotional guy. <laughs> I, I, I went to the theater and watched Marley and me and bawled my eyes out. But, but uh, music especially hypnotic music, like I'm saying, uh, music can elicit emotions that may not necessarily re reflect how we truly feel. And a lot of churches do this. Now, I will say, I don't think a majority of churches, they're going out there saying like, Ooh, how can we hypnotize these people into doing something? No, but they will use these tones because these tones will get people crying. These tones will get people jumping. These tones will get people excited. And are they excited for God and glorifying God? Or are they excited because the music's cool? You know a real fast way to test that out? Go ahead. If, if there's a church out there that's listening to this, and I don't know if you're taking any of this advice or if you're still listening now, if you play a lot of contemporary Christian music, let's say the Hillsongs and the Bethels, which, by the way, I don't agree with playing those. Uh, we can get into that into another day. But uh, if you play music like that, Go ahead and stop playing that for, let's say, four weeks in a row. Bust out a hymnal and sing some old hymns with a choir. No, you can maybe, maybe throw a light guitar or piano back there, but no heavy quality on instruments. Don't change your lights around, all that kind of stuff. And play those for four weeks straight. See how many people either, one, complain, or two, leave your church. If that if they do, then you know a majority of those people were at your church only because they liked the musical experience. Now, like I said, this is kind of a subliminal one because there are, trust me, there are some songs that these contemporary Christian praise and worship music singers sing that 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 sound amazing, you know, musically, vo vocally, they sound amazing. But like I said, they're using certain tones, they're using certain melodies. Uh, the way they play the music, and it's hypnotizing people. No, it's not hypnotizing them like sleepwalking and that kind of stuff, but it's putting you, it's making you feel emotions and eliciting emotions that you wouldn't normally have. This is why a lot of people, my sister and I were talking about this one time. There was somebody, uh, she was on a little, she was on, I think it was like a woman's forum on Facebook for Christian women, and somebody in the local area asked, oh, is there a church around that plays music such as Bethel or Hillsong? I'm tired of my church's old, boring music. Well, my sister, being the good, self-controlled person she was, and since she didn't know this person intimately, she held her tongue. But she talked to me about it and said, you know, I wanted to ask her, like, are you going to church to be entertained? Or are you going to church because you want to worship and offer your praise to God, either through singing or the preaching of his word? Well, that's another Thing, thing of mine, you know, people will call just the music part, the worship, and then the talking part, the sermon. It's all worship. Preaching the sermon is part of worship, if you didn't know that. We're worshiping God through the reading and learning of his word. But yes, a church that uses a lot of uh, emotional music is something you need to be on guard for. And this brings us to number eight and nine. And I'm going to roll up these two together because they're very similar. And they have a lot to do with the topic we just talked about. By the way, I am going to end after this part because I am just now halfway through the list. So I seriously doubt you want to have enough time to sit here and listen to me for two hours. So 
We'll end it at this one and we'll do part two next week. But number eight and nine, very similar to our number seven topic, and that is music that is played over altar calls and at the end of sermons. Let me just go ahead and paint you this picture. All right. You're in church. The pastor is getting towards the end of his sermon and then the worship team comes up. Or maybe it's just a guy with a guitar or a piano. Who knows? Uh, But they get up there. And they start playing music behind him while he's preaching his last parts of his message. And then he, he starts getting a little bit louder. And then the music gets louder. And the next thing you know, people start clapping and cheering. And then he gives an altar call and says, if you want to come down here and accept Christ in your life, come on up. And then next thing you know, there's people rushing up there. And then he says, oh, if you want to rededicate, if you've been messing up and want to rededicate your life to God, come on up here. More people get up there. So everybody repeat after me. And then they give the sinner's prayer, the repeat after me sinner's prayer. And this is wrong, all right? Now, granted, don't get me wrong. Uh, I believe God can operate through a lot of things. But what you're doing with this, just like we said in our hypnotic music, is you are manipulating people's emotions. Now, once again, I don't believe churches, for the most part, maybe some do, but most of them, I don't believe they're doing this with a malicious intent of trying to deceive people they truly believe that they that that they're doing something good by doing this but in fact they're doing the opposite they are eliciting an emotional response out of somebody making them feel things that they don't actually feel and a lot of people have a hard time with this one but let me give you here's my personal story with this and i know many other people have the same thing this is how i got i came up to give uh, my first confession of faith, which was not genuine and real and had any repentance behind it whatsoever. When I was a young boy, my parents took me to this play and this was a play about heaven and hell. It was a very good play. And then, uh, at the end, the pastor gets up, he starts giving a speech, music gets played behind it. It gets very emotionally hyped. And then he gives an altar call for people to come down and say a sinner's prayer. I was one of those people. I was emotionally high off that. It was amazing. Like I said, I am a very emotionally prone person. So I, you know, I got to be on guard. I, I try my best to be on guard about these things. But I went up there. I said, I said the repeat after me, sinner's prayer. And um, after that, I mean, thank the Lord, I grew up in a good Christian household. But when I became a teenager, there was no true repentance there. I was, I was the classic living out Christ with zero signs whatsoever. I professed to be a Christian by my mouth only, and through my deeds, I was denying Christ because, oh man, I was oh, I was not a good kid. Uh, I don't know if I've ever shared my testimony on here, but I'll go ahead and spare you the details and do that another day. But essentially, I was an emotionally driven person uh, through that. And this is what happens when you get these music playing at the end of sermons, jacking people up. And especially when you give an altar call, people, you're going to elicit this emotional response out of people. People are going to come running up in tears, you know, and they're feeling things uh, that may not be genuine. Can God operate through that? Yeah, I'm sure he could. But at the same time, I think there are more, I truly believe based off of testimonies that I have heard, there are more people that get deceived into thinking they are a believer uh, through that 
than actually repenting and believing. What they because what they end up doing is they place their faith in that prayer. They place their faith in that moment in time that they went up to the altar. I went up to the altar. I said the prayer. You know, I was crying. Okay, were you crying because you were truly repentant of your sins, or you were crying because the music was putting you in this hypnotic state and the pastor's words uh, kind of touched your heart the same way it would when you would watch a sad or emotional movie. Now, I'm not going to be the judge of that. I'm not going to go to somebody and point to them and say you are wrong because I cannot, I'm not a judge of salvation. That is only for God to say. What I can look at is look at the fruits of your life and say, hey man, you claim to be a Christian, but your life that you're living right now is not in line with someone who is walking in the Spirit and walking with Christ. And that's the danger that comes when you are playing music over your altar calls and at the end of your sermons. Once again, this is not something that I believe a lot of churches do maliciously and trying to deceive people. They truly believe that if they can get them up there and say this repeat-after-me prayer, then that means they're saved. When in fact, once again, I divert back to We don't save people. The Holy Spirit works in someone's life and causes them to believe in Christ. It's not something that we do. We can't save ourselves. It is the Holy Spirit that enters in our lives. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts us and causes us to believe in Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is a gift of God so that nobody can boast. It's not of works. Oh, I might as well have just quoted the entire passage right there of Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. But you know what I'm saying. Uh, salvation is 0% human effort, 100% God. And that includes you trying to elicit emotional responses to get somebody to say a repeat after me prayer. So this is something that you need to be on guard for at a church. I think I've beat that horse dead. All right. So we're going to go ahead and end the podcast right there. Like I said, we're about halfway through the list, so we'll go ahead and continue it next week. But overall, through this message, I'm really, like I said, I want to reiterate, I'm not trying to get you to look at everything your church does negatively and then say, oh my gosh, I have to leave this church. No, I, I want you to look about look at these things, think through it biblically, study the Bible, study the passages, then you can go bring it up to the elders or the pastors or wherever your leadership is inside your church and talk to them about this. Have a conversation about these things. You can be like, hey, pastor, you know, I noticed we do this and this and this, and I see some dangers in this, and have a good discussion about this. You never know what can come out of this. There's been times where I've had conversations with pastors that I love and respect, and they preach a good word, and then I didn't agree with something they said, and I did my due diligence, I went through the Bible, I brought it to them, and then we talked about it, and what do you know, the next thing that happens, they end up going, you know what, you might be right on this, I can't believe I've never caught that before. Things like that happen sometimes. At the end of the day, like I said, I'm doing this mostly because I want people to be aware of what could be happening inside a church And instead of saying, I'm just going to up and leave the church more so, I'm going to be the change inside my church. Now, granted, there's some churches that are so far lost and so far gone, and they're probably not even good to be considered a church. Then if that's the case, then you probably just got to pack your bags, get up out of there and find a good Bible believing church because the danger of you being in that environment Uh, You can get sucked into these, just like I have in the past. 
Well, anyways, I think I'm beating this horse dead now, so we'll go ahead and end it there, and we'll pick up on part two next week. Once again, if you have any comments or want to say anything, please, by all means, hit me up an email at ibnwpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, uh, what else are we on? Oh, Facebook. You can Facebook message me and I will respond. Uh, if you want to talk about this, we can one-on-one talk about it through messenger or something like that. Maybe you want to come on the show and we can talk about this more in depth. I am all 100% for that. Anyways, y'all have a great day and, uh, hopefully this blessed you in some sort of way. Y'all have a good one. Let's go ahead and end this out in prayer. Dear heavenly father, Number one, as we go through all this, Lord, we just want to be a part of a body that is truly what you want that body to be, Lord, that stands firm on your word and is discerning about the things you want us to be discerning about, God. I pray that you just continue to give us guidance, Lord, and to continue to give us correction. And we can do all these things in grace and in love uh, because we truly care about your church, Lord, and we truly care about the people that are going to your church, Lord. I pray that we just lift this up, uh, that we have discerning eyes, but at the same time, Lord, that they're full of love and care. Thank you for everything that you do in our lives and your will alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all have a wonderful day. We will talk to you next time.